Well, my, uh, my senior year of high school, I was, I was on the varsity basketball team, and don't let the word varsity confuse you into thinking I was a great athlete, okay? So my senior year of high school, I'm on the varsity basketball team, and surprisingly, we actually had a, a, fairly, good, uh, a fairly good team that year. Uh, we were the Wood County Wildcats. Now, when they were creating that, uh, that mascot, because our school was about 10 years old, I don't know why in the world they picked the Wildcats. We were the purple and gold Wildcats, you know, so that's not the most, you're not feeling the most manly out there in purple and gold and the Wildcats cheering for you, but that's us. So we're the purple and gold Wildcats. It's our senior year. We have a great season because of some extremely talented seniors. And like I said, no, I was not one of those extremely talented seniors. Uh, in fact, though, during my, during my senior year, I did make the newspaper in the sports column one time, right? So it's good. Yeah, yeah, there you go. We're going up against our, our, one of our biggest rivals, and it says right in the newspaper, Andrew Goodballet, picture of me, puts up a triple-double that game, right? Here's the problem, though. Uh, Andrew Goodballet in the picture was both me, but the person who actually had those stats was my cousin, Cody Goodballet. I was in for the last 30 seconds of the game because we were down by 20, okay? So that's, that, that's the only time that Andrew Goodballet and being good at sports has ever been drawn together in the same sentence. Uh, so it wasn't me that was good on the sports team, but we did have some good seniors. And, and as all sports things tend to go, it's uh, the end of the winter sports season. And what do we have? We have a awards banquet for all of our winter sports teams. Now, these award banquets are high drama nights for high schoolers, right? You have a bunch of seniors that think they're entitled to an award and everyone's kind of speculating. They are high drama nights, and this night was no exception. So there's one particular senior on our team who was anticipating that he was going to get a major award. He was thinking he was going to get special recognition for his performance that year. Uh, so uh, let's just call his name Ben. Okay, so there was this arrogant athlete. Let's call his name Ben. So Ben, by far, had the best three-point percentage on the team. He was one of the highest scorers. He was one of the team captains. He had uh, just a lot of potential when it came to playing basketball. So there's no doubt that he was a big fish in a little pond, right? So we're not big school, so he's a big fish in a little pond, and he wanted everybody to know it, and he acted that way most of the season. So it comes to sports awards banquet night. He's anticipating he's going to get the final, uh, the final award, and in his own estimation, he by all stretches of the imagination, deserves this. However, our head coach saw otherwise. <laughs> our head coach had different criteria of what he was looking for for the people he wanted to award that night. So our head coach, instead of seeing talent in this young guy, uh, he saw a lot of wasted potential. Instead of seeing leadership, he saw someone that was only a team captain in name. Instead of seeing someone who put up a lot of points, he saw someone that couldn't contribute to being part of the team. So they had very different assessments of what it means to be great on this particular basketball team. So it's time for the last trophy to be announced. Everyone's kind of sitting there. It's uh, the Wildcat 
Leadership Award is the name of the trophy, okay? The Wildcat Light, super cheesy. Cheesiest trophy you can never get, right? What, but, but for high school seniors, man, that's the big time, getting the Wildcat Leadership Award, right? So everyone's sitting on their seat, and the coach goes out of his way to take, it, to take some time and kind of brag this person up and talk about uh, how influential they've been in the team. And right then, you start, everyone can look over and see Ben start to, like, puff up, right? So he's fixing his tie. He's on the edge of his seat. And when they go to announce the name, he starts to get out of his chair only for a different name to be called. So it was actually my friend that got called up, and let's just call him Eric. Okay, so Eric gets called up for this award to the shock of everyone, because if you were to look at Eric on paper, he wasn't a great performer. Uh, He played a few minutes every game, maybe. Uh, Eric probably had 20 cumulative points for the year. He wasn't, uh, he didn't have a lot of basketball potential in in, uh, really uh, much at all. But Eric embodied what Coach saw as someone who is actually a, a, a leader to the team. So Eric wasn't the obvious choice, but the coach, Coach Ellis, had different criteria of what he was looking for in a true leader. In his mind, leadership was about character. It was about integrity. It was about humility. It was about selflessness. So Eric, my friend, he was one of those guys who would show up to practice early and leave late. He was the guy who wasn't above filling up the water bottles and collecting the towels after the game. He was also the guy that coach knew he could always trust if he had something that needed to get done. He was the guy that was always encouraging the players, making sure that everyone was being respectful and cheering up everyone after a hard loss. Uh, Eric was the guy who had the respect of the team, not Ben. So that night, Ben went away really upset and really angry at coach because in his mind, he was expecting to go home with a big trophy, with a lot of applause, and uh, kind of, you know, inflating his already huge ego a little bit more. But instead, he walked away feeling a little bit confused, a little bit upset, and ultimately, he walked away empty-handed. And, and the problem was, he had a very different understanding of what greatness meant to be on the basketball team than what the coach had in mind when he saw greatness. I want to start with that story tonight because I think there are a lot of people that sometimes act more like Ben's than Eric's when it comes to our spiritual lives and what we think God is looking for in great people on his team. What does it mean to be great on team Jesus? What's God looking for? And a lot of the times God's assessment is really different than our assessment. And the reason it's important for us to realize that tonight is because one day for all people who are Christ followers, for all people that have turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ, we are going to go to the heavenly awards banquet. If you are in Christ, you have a chair reserved, you have your seat on it, uh, uh, your name on a seat, and nothing can take that away from you. It's going to be a great night of celebration together once we make it to eternity. However, Uh, there are going to be some people that maybe get a special recognition from the coach and others who won't, depending on whether or not they were truly practicing the things that the coach was looking for. So we're the things tonight that our heavenly coach, that our heavenly father are looking for, for for Christ followers who are part of team Jesus. We want to make sure that we're not a a spiritual Ben, but we're trying to be a spiritual Eric instead. So so where do we start? Well, Well, in Matthew 20, Jesus gives us a very clear answer of what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. 
And essentially, this is what Jesus says. If you want to be great in my kingdom, then you have to humble yourself and be the servant, the slave of all, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. Tonight, we're going to see a dynamic example of that kind of sacrificial service. But you got to realize we live in a culture that that, what Jesus just said there, that is not the measure of greatness in our culture. Our culture uses a very different measure of greatness. Just think about the people that our culture say are kind of the great people in our society. Pro sports athletes, actors, musicians, politicians, CEOs, a group of people that's really known for selfless service, right? No, not at all, right? That there are very different appraisals in our culture from what Jesus says here. It means to be someone that's great, that's truly a leader, that's truly impacting the world. As being a kingdom citizen, we need to realize that we have to invert those measurements of what the world prioritizes as greatness. Being great is not about being served, but rather serving others. Being great is not about amassing titles for ourselves, but setting aside titles in order to bless other people. Being great in the kingdom of God is not about how many people we can get to admire us, but instead how many people we can get to admire our master. So tonight, as we're thinking about our big idea in our session of what it means to be a true faithful follower of Jesus, we're going to see that to follow, we need to care more about towels than titles. We need to care more about towels than titles. And what do I mean by that? Well, as we're going to see in our passage tonight, a towel is symbolic of someone who is a servant. A title is symbolic of someone who sees themselves as the king. We need to care more about towels than titles if we want to be faithful followers of Christ. And that's a radical lesson that the disciples needed to learn in John chapter 13. Because after three years of being with Jesus, 24-7. After three years of hearing Jesus preach at the Sermon on the Mountain, preach all of his uh, sermons and parables, hear all of his lessons on what it means to be a sacrificial, selfless person, they still didn't get it. So what does Jesus decide to do with the last few hours that he has with his 12 apostles? He decides that he's going to teach them an important lesson that they're never going to forget. So with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 13 and follow along as I read the first, uh, first 17 verses. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this is the night, before, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed right before uh, the crucifixion and his death take place. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and he took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm about to do, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. 
And Simon Peter replied to him rashly, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a sponge bath. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed, Peter, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put his outer garments back on and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, are, uh, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. I'm afraid that our familiarity with this passage sometimes blinds us from truly appreciating the radical action and the countercultural action that Jesus does in these verses. I mean, don't miss out on what's going on here. Jesus is literally lowering himself to do the thing that the lowest people on the first century ladder would perform. The lowest of the low. He's washing the disciples' feet in this passage. And in the first century culture, there was nothing more humiliating than being the foot washer servant. In the household, that was a job that was reserved for the lowest person on the ladder. In fact, the Jewish laws and customs said it was illegal for you to make your Jewish servant or slave wash the feet. That's a role that's reserved for the Gentile servants. That's how beneath your dignity it is. That's what's going on here. This is a role that absolutely no one wants. This is the role that everyone wants to avoid. And is it any surprise that this isn't the job of the year? I mean, just think about what it means to be the foot-washing servant in first century Jerusalem. So we're in first century Jerusalem. It's the feast of the Passover. That means that there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people flocking through the city of Jerusalem. And during this time, the roads aren't nice. They're not paved. They're not bricked like, they, uh, like our roads now. Instead, they are just dirt sandy roads. And as you walk through, they didn't have boots and nice shoes like we did. And instead, the footwear during the time would have been an open sandal. So everywhere you walk, your feet immediately get dusty and dirty and muddy. But not only that, if you're in a big city, guess who else is sharing the road with you? Animals. Yeah, right? Animals. And animals aren't potty trained, okay? These camels of Jerusalem don't know to do their business outside of the city, okay? So as they're walking down the roads, what's happening? Animals are peeing and pooping all along the road, right? And that's the same road that you're walking in. So as you're walking down these roads, there's going to be an odorous smell and an odorous uh, uh, covering over the roads that you're walking through in your open-toed shoes. Very nice, right? So because of that, when you would walk into a house, there would be a water basin and a towel sitting not too far from the door because these crazy people didn't want people dragging animal feces all through their living space. I don't get that. Why would they do that, right? No, of course they did that. That's disgusting. Your feet would get absolutely disgusting. So the job of the wash boy, the job of the servant who would wash the feet, they'd come, they'd bring a towel, they'd bring a pitcher, and they're literally washing the dirty, nasty, mucky feet of people that have been trouncing all uh, through all sorts of dirt, grime, and, and animal waste. 
That's the job of that servant. So let's put it this way. In Jewish kindergarten back in Jerusalem in the first century, when it was dress up for what you want to be when you grow up day, no one's saying, I want to be the water pitcher guy that wipes all the poop off of everyone's feet when they come into the house, right? That wasn't the, that wasn't the job of the year. No one wants this job. So getting back to our narrative tonight, no one wanted the job in that narrative either. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. John makes it abundantly clear in his gospel that Jesus winds up washing their feet in the middle of dinner, which means that as the disciples came into the upper room for the Passover meal, when they realized that there wouldn't have been a servant there to wash their feet, they would have been, taken one look, saw the pitcher, saw the towel, and thought, not me. <laughs> that is not my job. I am walking right past that. I am not wiping down 11 guys' nasty feet tonight. I'm going to go right on over to the food, right? Typical guy. So they go ahead right to the table, ignore the hard work, go for the food. And as all of them are passing by, not one of them stopped to wash their feet, to wash Jesus' feet, to wash anyone else's feet. And I'm sure that at that moment, Jesus was probably feeling a little disappointed with them. Not one of them was willing to take the role of the menial servant, deny themselves, and humbly serve the other people. So Jesus has a plan to teach them a lesson. And I love Jesus' dramatic timing. He knows how to make a punchline sometimes. Uh, so he waits until the meal has been served, so it's the middle of dinner to make his point. And the Gospel of Luke actually tells us that during this same meal, we don't see it in the Gospel of John, but the Gospel of Luke tells us, during this same meal, the disciples started having some interesting conversation during the dinner. Do you know what their topic of conversation was, according to the Gospel of Luke? A fight broke out among them of who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom when Jesus reigned as king. So essentially, Jesus is here. He's contemplative. He's serious. He's thinking, in just a few hours, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. And my closest 12 friends, disciples, and companions are sitting here, and they're essentially ranking themselves and saying, I call shotgun when Jesus cruises in as king, right? They're essentially saying, okay, coach, is, he's been assessing us. I think I'm a team captain. I think I'm a starter. I'm second string. You're the bench, right, for all the Andrews on the team. You're the bench, right? So, so all these things going on, that, that's what's going on in their minds, and they're arguing about this. So Jesus decides, okay, and I, I don't know if this was his timing, but I think his timing to wash the disciples' feet was right in the middle of this conversation. So what does he do? He sets down his glass. He pushes his plate forward. He gets very quiet and he stands up. And the disciples are thinking, what's going on with Jesus? You know, did they not cook the meal right? You got some heartburn or something, Jesus? What's, what's going on? And Jesus walks over and he comes over and he takes off his outer garments. So he takes off his nice clothes. And when he took that off, he would have literally just had his, his underwear left on, which is what the slaves would wear. That's the apparel of the slaves. So what Jesus is doing Here's Jesus, just a couple days ago, remember when he came into Jerusalem, what was everyone chanting? Hosanna, Hosanna, get the palm branches. You're the king, you're the king. He's not wearing a crown. He's not wearing robes of purple. He takes off his nice clothes and he's wearing, he's wearing the same thing that a slave would be wearing as he approaches the water basin and the towel. So he comes over, it says he grabs a towel, right? And he wraps the towel around his waist. He gets the, the water basin, to wash the disciples' feet. He grabs the pitcher 
and he slowly comes over, gets down on his knees, and starts to wash the disciples' feet. Now, at this point, I'm sure the disciples were thinking, what in the world is Jesus doing? I'm guessing that their skin was crawling with a little bit of shame and a little bit of, why, why is Jesus washing my feet? Here's the king of the world, the son of God, and he's down with the outfit of a slave about ready to take their feet, all 12 of them, and wash the dirt, wash the grime, wash the animal waste off of their feet, take the towel that's wrapped around his waist and dry their feet, and he goes right down the line and does that for all 12 disciples. They were probably feeling pretty ashamed in that moment. I don't know about you, have you ever been shamed by a parent or maybe someone in authority over you? It doesn't feel very good, does it? I was reminded of a time when uh, back in Ohio, I, I lived uh, in a house that our ba- my backyard connected to my grandparents' backyard. But there's a really big hill between, so you couldn't see the houses. And, and they lived on this really steep hill, so their driveway was like the driveway of death whenever there would be snow and ice. It was just super slick. So one time we get a snowstorm, and my grandpa calls over, and he asked me and my brother to come shovel his driveway. And we're like, oh, this driveway is massive too. And we're like, oh, man, we don't want to shovel the driveway. But we say, okay, grandpa, we'll come over tomorrow morning and, and shovel the driveway. So tomorrow morning comes, snow day. We don't go over in the morning, afternoon. Finally, it's like, okay, we should go shovel grandpa's driveway. So the time we get over there, what happens? Grandpa is finishing up shoveling the driveway, right? At that point, your heart sinks and you're thinking, what are you doing, grandpa? That's not your job. That's dangerous. Why are you out on the ice? And then you realize it's because no one else was willing to do it, right? He was waiting and no one would do it. So that's what Jesus is doing in this instance. I think the disciples... I think the disciples get it, and they're feeling ashamed in that moment. Jesus makes his way over to Peter, and he says, okay, Peter, it's time for me to wash your feet. No one has spoken at this point. I think there's just awkward silence galore. Finally, Peter's the one that opens up his mouth, and Peter says, never. (laughs) You will never wash my feet, Jesus. No, don't look at my feet, right? He's like, no, I can't let you do this. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, Peter. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter goes to the other extreme and says, okay, just give me a sponge bath then. Wash, wash me all, Jesus. And he says, okay, you don't need that either. You just need your feet washed, right? So when he does this, Jesus interjects a little spiritual analogy here as well. And what he's saying here about this cleansing, he's saying, I'm doing something physical right now that I'm giving you example. But he said, there's also a spiritual dimension of what I'm doing as well. He says, I clean you. Once you become a follower of Christ, a disciple, he says, you're all already clean, except for one of you being Judas. He says, the rest of you are clean, which means they had put their faith in Christ. They were faithfully following the Lord. He said, and once you're cleansed from your sin, you never need another bath. You're never going to lose your salvation. There's nothing you can ever do to be dirty again. He said, but occasionally you do still need your feet washed. He says, you still need to get rid of that sin that causes a break in the relationship with God for his children. It's what 1 John 1, 8, 9 would talk about when, we, when John writes, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a one-time task of when we put our faith in Christ. That's something we have to do every single day as we continue to sin and make mistakes. I thought about that image today because how many of us are really good about actually getting our feet washed and confessing those little sins that stack up in our life, Right? How long do you think it took for the disciples' feet to start stinking to high heavens? 
probably a day, right? Reminded me of a friend of mine that uh, when I was out in California, he had terrible foot odor, and he would tell you that. We were rooming together for a camp. He's like, just to warn you, my foot odor's terrible. So he took his shoes off, and within minutes, the entire, I'm like, go wash your feet right now. He's like, I'm sorry, I know, they're bad. So it was, but it was really bad. Like, so he'd wash his feet a couple times a day. How long does it take for our spiritual feet, for sake of, I don't have a better metaphor, but our spiritual feet to start stinking before a holy God with our sin, right? Uh, pretty quick. But I think a lot of us, if we would let our guard down and take off our shoes, there's probably a lot of smells that'd be coming out. There's a lot of sin that maybe we don't always confess. But God tells us we need to keep short accounts of our sin. We need to be faithful to constantly go and say, Jesus, I know I'm clean. I know I have a relationship with you, but there's sin in my life that I need, I need a foot wash right now. I need, that, I need that cleansed. I need that forgiveness. Please cleanse me. We need to keep short accounts with the Lord. So Peter replies, and, and Jesus kind of corrects him on, on his viewpoint. And then finally, Jesus, is, Jesus finishes up with the last of the disciples, and he puts down his towel. He puts down the water basin. He goes over and puts his, his outer garments back on, and then he sits down, and he says to the disciples, okay, do you understand what I've just done for you? Not a response. I don't know how long the awkward pause is between his words and his explanation, but there's not a response there. And the disciples thought, we've already looked like idiots once tonight. We're not answering this question wrong. And Jesus says, okay, okay, here's the answer. What I've just done for you, I've left you an example. You call me master and Lord. You call me by my titles. And you're right. I have those titles. I am your master. I am your Lord. He said, but if I, your master and Lord, am willing to get down and wash your dirty, disgusting feet, you should do it for each other as well. He says, I give, I'm giving you an example of what sacrificial, selfless leadership looks like. Pick up the towel and start to work. Jesus is saying there is no job beneath you as a Christ follower. There's nothing that you should be able to say, no, that's not for me. I refuse to do that. That's beneath my dignity. Jesus said, if I'm willing to do it, how much more should you? Whenever I read this passage, I can't help but think of Philippians chapter two. Starting in verse three, this is what Paul writes, talking about the ultimate demonstration of Jesus's foot washing and selfless sacrificial service. He says this, we need to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, we need to count other people more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had the greatest titles of any person ever. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And yet he's willing to set those titles aside, take on the form of a servant, and not just wash people's feet, but be hung on a cross Stripped naked, beaten, mocked, spat upon, had his beard ripped out, a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. He cried out in agony, and he was willing to do that because he loved us that much. And that's what he knew it took to love us and to secure our eternity with God the Father. And what Paul's saying here in Philippians and what Jesus is saying in John is, Jesus is saying, look at my example. 
and imitate it. And if you want to know the extent of what it means to be a sacrificial servant, a faithful follower of Jesus, Jesus says, I died for you. Go and do likewise. There's no limitations on Christ's command for us to love and to serve. The world needs more Christians who do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The world needs more Christians who care more about towels than titles. The world needs more Christians who care more about serving others than being served. And the world needs more Christians who count the needs of others more significant than themselves. So Jesus says here, the point of this passage is he's leaving us an example to follow. He says, the towel's yours now. Get to work. So how, how do we take a hold of this in our life? How do we start to cultivate a lifestyle of being towel servants? How, what, what can we do? How can we start to live this type of selfless servanthood out in our lives? Well, I've got a few ideas of how we can apply this to our lives. First is this. We need to confront the barriers in our lives to selfless service. We need to confront the things that hold us back from being the servants that God wants us to be. And the first one is this, titles, titles. Realize Jesus didn't deny his title. He said, I'm the son of God. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. Jesus didn't deny and pretend like he didn't have his titles. But he said, guess what? Those titles don't matter. Titles don't mean we're exempt from doing the hard things in life. And it's really easy to let ourselves do that. So what titles are you using to not selflessly serve other people? Maybe it's the title of boss at work. I'm in charge. I get to give the orders. That's the intern work. You're never going to catch me using a stapler. I put in my dues. I get to do whatever I want. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. Maybe it's the title of boss. Maybe it's the title of breadwinner at home. I'm the breadwinner. So when I come home, why should I have to do any chores or any housework? If I want to kick my shoes off and throw them on the floor, someone else can pick them up. I work hard. I do all these things all week. I should just be the king of the household. I'm the breadwinner. That entitles me to live however I want at home. Maybe it's the title of I'm too busy and too important to do those things, Right? So maybe if you're driving along the road and you see someone that blew a tire and had a wreck and you think, oh man, I should stop and help them. No, I'm, I'm too busy and too important. Someone else with more time can do it, right? And the title starts to go through. I'm an important person. I, I don't have time to do all these things. Man, this is so true. This is so true in my life too. It's so easy to have the title pastor or servant on the weekend and think that means there's jobs I don't have to do. I remember a few months ago, I immediately had to repent <laughs> I had just finished preaching over at Weston and someone came up running to me from the children's wing and said, Andrew, Andrew, you got to come here. And I came back, kid threw up everywhere. I mean, it was like, tried to get to the bathroom, 20 feet of puke trail, right? And she's like, I got to get going. Okay, bye. And left. So I'm like, so it's me, I'm thinking, I just finished preaching and now I got to clean up this kid's puke, right? <laughs> that is not my job. But in that moment, God just kind of smacked me upside the head and said, you you're the pastor of Weston Church. Yes, that is your job. More before anyone else, that's your job. You need to be willing to do the dirty work. I'm so glad I have a role model like Pastor Jeff to look up to in this area. 
I was coming to work a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning. It was about 6.30, I think, the time that we got here. It was after one of our many snowstorms. And I see someone out there shoveling the driveways. I thought, who got here that early to come shovel the driveways? Man, they're dedicated. And they're just like shoveling away. And then I look a little closer. Of course, it's Jeff out there shoveling all the driveways all by himself at, at the Wausau campus. And that, that's something he does often. We can't let our titles say, because I, because I have that title, I'm immune to doing that kind of work. Second area that we can watch out for is our own prideful craving for comfort. I'm entitled to my comfort. I deserve comfort. I've earned comfort. It's one of the biggest barriers in our lives to sacrificial service. Being a servant is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to cost us resources. It's going to cost us time. It's a costly endeavor to be a servant. And we're never going to make that investment if we think my comfort is the number one thing that I care about. A couple years ago, one of, one of the, just a guy in, in, in uh, the evangelical world I really looked up to for a long time. He, I just really enjoyed him. He was flying out to speak at a church that I was at. And I was so excited to get to meet him. But I was so disappointed after he came. He came and they had a hotel reservation at a, a nice, I think it was a nice Hyatt in the area. And upon arriving, he said, this won't do. I need a nicer hotel. So instead, he had to get moved to the Ritz-Carlton by the beach or else he wouldn't stay for the conference, right? That's one of those moments where we can get so fixated on what we think we deserve because of how gifted, how prominent, how prestigious we are that we lose sight of what Jesus wanted. We're not called to live in palaces and to uh, have the comfort that we want. We're called to be sacrificial servants and deny our comforts to do the greatest good for others. A fourth thing is, or third thing is this. Sometimes we convince ourselves that other people don't deserve to be helped. Sometimes we don't sacrificially serve other people because we think it's their fault they need help and they don't deserve it. But you know, I was confronted when I was reading this passage and reminded that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, which disciple was there? Judas. He washed Judas's feet. What did Judas do hours later? He kissed him to betray him so the Roman guards would come and take him away. Jesus still served the man that would betray him and ultimately lead to his death. But we're, we're pretty good sometimes at saying, <laughs> This person doesn't deserve my help, so I'm not going to give it. I was reminded, I, I had a friend uh, a while back who he felt like God was kind of leading him to take someone into his house for a while that was kind of down on his luck, trying to rebuild and re-strategize after making some major mistakes in his life. And his friend felt God was calling him to do that, but at the same time he thought, but that's uncomfortable. <laughs> what if this person, it doesn't work out? What if they steal something from me? What if it's hard? What if it does? All these questions started running through their head. And you know what? The counsel that he received from a lot of Christians was don't do it. It's too costly. It's too risky. Sometimes God's going to put something on our heart that's uncomfortable and maybe a little abnormal to the world. But we need to recognize that if Jesus is willing to wash Judas' feet, we got to be willing to show people a little bit of the benefit of the doubt sometimes and to serve even the people that we don't think deserve it. So when we're struggling to serve, what do we do? Well, I think second, what we see in this passage, we have to look to the cross. We have to look to the cross. 
That's the ultimate demonstration of sacrificial service. That's the ultimate demonstration of Jesus picking up the towel and serving. On the cross, we're reminded that Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life so that we could have eternal life through God. And in light of that, in light of that, how could we not love and serve one another? So in those moments, as we're thinking about the cross, as we're thinking about all that God has done for us, I heard this said recently, and I, I thought it was so helpful. For every one time we take a look at ourselves, we need to take 10 looks at Christ. And if we're doing that, and if we're gazing at Christ, and we're looking at the cross, it's going to be a whole lot easier to start being selfless and sacrificial if we just stop looking in the mirror. So we need to start asking ourselves the question every day, how today am I going to be a foot-washing neighbor? How today am I going to be a foot-washing husband or wife? How today am I going to be a foot-washing father or mother? How today am I going to be a foot-washing participant, member of Highland Community Church on the weekends? We have to start asking those questions of how today am I specifically going to pick up the towel and serve other people? And then third, we just need to remember the joy that comes from serving. I love how our passage ends tonight in verse 17. Jesus says to him, you know these things, right? He says, you know these things, but blessed, joyful, satisfied are you if you do them. Jesus is saying when you choose the life of picking up the towel, he says there's great joy to be found. I love what the apostle Paul said in Acts 20, but in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So as we're coming full circle now to the beginning of our passage again tonight, strive for a life of greatness. There's nothing wrong with that. Endeavor to be great. Endeavor to do great and awesome things for God. However, we all need to likewise remember what God's measurements of greatness are. It's not about amassing a certain amount of titles. It's not about amassing a certain amount of power or prestige. That doesn't matter. Greatness in the kingdom is being the servant and the slave of all. So as we remember that tonight, I just want to take a moment now to re quietly reflect and say, you know what? Where are the areas in my life where I'm pursuing titles, prominence, power, prestige, and where are the areas where I'm pursuing a life of, of the towel? What are the areas that need to be swapped a little bit? God, what are the areas where you're calling me to get down, to kneel down and start doing the dirty, hard work of washing the feet of the people that you've put in my life? So just bow your heads, take a couple moments I want us to think about that tangibly tonight and ask God, show me the areas that I need to change. Sam's gonna play some music and then in a couple minutes I'll pray, but just take a moment and reflect on that yourselves.
Father, we know it's so easy for us to become fixated on the titles, on the things, same things that our culture and our society uplifts, whether that's popularity or power or influence. It's so easy to get wrapped up and be fixated on those things. But Father, I pray that all of us tonight learn the same lesson that the Apostle Paul did as he wrote Philippians, where he said, you know what? All this stuff that I amassed, the titles, the power, the influence, I count it all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, that has never put their faith in you, I pray that as they come face to face with your sacrificial example of Jesus dying on the cross to take away our sins so that we could have life, that they see the love that you have for them. And in that moment, they say, I want Jesus as my Savior give my life to him. For those of us who are followers of you, I pray that you help us to remember your measurements of greatness. Help us to realize that in this life, the best investment we can make is being sacrificial, being humble, and serving one another. Show us the areas tonight where you want us to pick up the towel, Lord. It's not always easy. It's not always fun but you promise there is blessing and joy and satisfaction on the other side of service. We pray these things in Jesus' name.